Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about advanced care planning, medical considerations is M. Jane Markley. Jane, president of M. Jane Markley Consulting, is a consultant and healthcare ethics advisor with 35 plus years experience in healthcare. She works with individuals, families, organizations, ethics committees, and healthcare systems to help them understand the importance of advanced care planning for themselves, their loved ones, and their members. A retired Navy nurse, she is board certified in healthcare management, a patient advocate, and a former hospital ethics committee chair. She trains healthcare advocates, speaks nationally and internationally, and works one-on-one -on -one with individuals and their families to complete their advanced directives. The presented content does not provide or constitute medical, financial, or legal advice. The content is for information purposes only. Viewing or listening to the content does not constitute a physician-patient, dentist-patient, fiduciary-client, or attorney-client relationship. How are you doing today, Jane? I'm doing fine. Thanks, Jason. Looking forward to our conversation. Um, before we get started, for those that are joining us for the live webinar, if you have any questions, type your questions in. Time permitting, we will do everything we can to get your questions answered. So, Jane, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thanks, Jason. It's such a pleasure. I always enjoy the opportunity to speak to the Knowledgeable Aging webinar series. And this is my fourth series on advanced care planning. This one, as you know, is related to um, medical considerations. Um, there are a lot of terms that are addressed in the medical community, and it's very easy to get confused. So um, in the 15 to 20 minutes I have to speak to you today, in order to leave some room for your questions, uh, I'm not going to be able to cover everything. But what I want to do is give you a start so that you know um, what you don't know, and you can spend some time doing some research afterwards. So jot down any questions you may have, and I will... Um, try to answer as many as possible in the last minutes that we have at the end of the program. For those of you who know me um, and have heard me before, my, I'm always talking about having the conversation and giving the gift. This is what needs to happen in order for people to complete their advanced directives and communicate with other people what's really important to you, what matters most. Part of having that conversation is your understanding of the kind of health care you want or don't want as life moves forward. But how on earth can you do that if you don't understand the terms? If, it, if people are speaking Greek in the medical community, it's really difficult. So that's why I'm addressing this today is to get you in familiar with some of the jargon and hopefully motivated enough to look up and do some research on your own of other things that may not make sense to you, may not quite understand. And for heaven's sakes, please don't use television shows as your guidance as to what this stuff is. They are 99% of the time wrong. So I want you to seek out resources that are are valid and helpful to you, whether that's a, a neighbor who's a nurse, uh, you know, your physician, um, the, on the web, uh, getting good um, resources. And one of those is the National Institutes of Aging, and it will be on the list of references at the end of this show. Um, they have, a, they're a very reputable place, and they have lots of uh, information about um, the terms that I'm going to be talking about today. What I want you to become is an educated consumer. And that's very important. And then I want you to document your preferences so that you can give that gift. Medical jargon. There's lots of it. 
CPR, most people have heard of. It's cardiopulmonary resuscitation. It's, the, it's done to restart the heart when we start and we initiate breathing if they should stop. CPR came into the being in the 1950s, so it's really not that old. And in 1957, the first defibrillator was invented and used. Now, there's a first word you may or may not know, defibrillator. For those of you who don't, it's what you see on television where someone's heart has stopped and they take two paddles and they put them on the bare chest and they shock the person. And then what they're doing is trying to reinitiate the heart to beat. Um, that was that is part of the CPR process and part of what goes on um, in uh, in caring for people who have a have a, a need because their heart has stopped or they're stopped breathing. Um, this works really well on those people who are healthy, who have no other medical concerns, you know, except for the fact they may have a blocked artery, which is what causes a heart attack. Um, and if you can get the heart restarted, that blocked artery can be fixed and then the patient can go on with their life and not lose any capability as a result of having CPR. Um, CPR on patients who have that heart attack or um, electrocution or drowning victims who are otherwise healthy has a very good chance of bringing them to the point where we can fix the problem that caused their them to, their heart to stop and uh, and move them forward. What you need to understand and what most people are confused about because of the television shows we have is that for those people who have CPR in the hospital setting, those of those people, only 15% survive their hospital stay to be discharged. As I say, CPR is really not very effective in those people with multiple medical issues and cause a lot of really ornery side effects, things like broken ribs, which cause uh, punctures to the lung, and that just adds to the problem that people have. Defibrillators can cause burns to the chest, sore throat because of an intubation, and that's the next one. The, when you put someone on a ventilator, you need to intubate them, and that means putting a tube down the throat, which your body is not real thrilled about, but can do, and it goes into your lungs and allows the machine to breathe for you. That's what intubation is, and the ventilator is that machine that breathes for you. That is something that requires sedation, uh, for most patients to calm them down and decrease any discomfort from having that tube in place. And that tube will be in, can be in place for just a few hours, a few days, a but if it gets into the weeks and it's an elongated period of time, after two weeks, they'll want to put in a tracheostomy, another word for you to know about. And that's the, the hole that goes in your neck here okay right here and that goes into and allows us to put a tube in that goes in again into your lungs to breathe for you so you don't have anything coming out of your mouth um, it's for hydration and feeding um i'm sorry it's a uh, i'm jumping here uh if it's still needed after two weeks that's um that's where it'll have to go 
And um, it's not hard surgery, but it, it, it is surgery when, when you put that in. Another thing is the artificial nutrition and hydration, uh, the feeding tubes, the things that you put in so that you can provide nutrients and substance to a patient who is recovering from surgery, say. Uh, they can't swallow because of the surgery that was done, so they would put in a, a feeding tube either through the nose and into the stomach, or if it's an elongated period of time, through the side of the, the, the wall of your stomach and um, in so that we can put in feedings. Um, they can, as I say, they can be in a short period of time or a long period of time, and they have pros and cons. Um, if it's a short period of time, they really can be very valuable in helping a person get over a, a sudden occurrence. But if it's a long period of time and the person is, is old and has other medical problems and is in the dying process, sometimes having feedings is more detrimental to the patient than it is to not feed them at all. And some patients choose VSED, which is affectionately known as fasting for death. It's voluntary stopping eating and drinking by the patient. It's a patient's choice. It should be managed by the medical world just because it can make it much more comfortable for the person. But um, that is another acronym that you're going to hear about, and it's, it's very becoming very uh, popular in the media right now, uh, where people are talking about VSED and the pros and cons of it. Dialysis is another thing if your kidneys were to stop or not function effectively. Uh, again, short-term, long-term, uh, it, it all depends on the disease entity that the individual has. So here's that's now that we know some of the jargon, what you need to do is put together your preferences for those types of issues that might occur that would cause you to need those things to happen. And that's a living will and a durable power of attorney, which is all part of the advanced directive. Uh, and putting in your living will, helping people understand what it is that matters most to you. What are your preferences? What are your goals and aspirations? What things make you tick? And that's extremely important because we're not going to know what you want unless you tell us, or at least give us a sense of what, what is important to you. Other things that become preferences um, as a part of your advanced directives can be antibiotics. They may provide a lot of comfort. They may make you better, but they also may extend the dying process. And sometimes at the end of life, people will not want to have antibiotics because they want the dying process to continue and not be extended. And they want to do what's called AND, allow natural death. Another thing you may be interested in is if you need blood products, there are some religious groups who do not want to have blood products. That's important for us to know and should be in your living will. Also, hospital transfers. Patients who have had chemotherapy and radiation, and there's really nothing else that can be done to stem their cancer. Um, these people frequently will say, I've had enough. I want to go home and live as comfortably as I possibly can until the end. And so they refuse hospital transfer. They don't want to go back to the hospital for a lot of reasons. Many of us don't want to go to the hospital, if, certainly if we don't have to. Then, and so the other thing is that it's important for you to know what treatments you can refuse. Pretty much any treatment can be refused by the patient. And helping 
your loved ones understand under what circumstances you would want to refuse treatment is a very important part of this whole process. Once you've gotten your preferences identified, there are times when medical orders will be written that will uh, allow healthcare workers to do what it is that is ordered, which should be based on your advanced directive. Do not resuscitate is an excellent example, and do not attempt to resuscitate is virtually the same thing. Different states have different terms, so it gets real confusing. But if if a patient gets to the point like that patient who had cancer who's at home, they may not want to be resuscitated if um, they should stop breathing and they should and their heart should stop. This is also called natural death, and allowing natural death is a relatively past 20, 30 year new term um, that speaks to it, but speaks to it in a more positive way than do not resuscitate. It sounds like we're do, not doing something we should be doing, which in fact is not correct. We're allowing death to take over and do its thing. And that's allow natural death. Do not intubate is not heard very often anymore um, because intubation and CPR go kind of hand in hand. So if you're gonna do CPR on somebody and you're gonna need to put oxygen into them and the patient says, do not intubate, that becomes a challenge. So, but it is used still. POLST is physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. It's an order written by a nurse, practitioner, a PA, or your physician that identifies what is done for you in different settings. Um, particularly a good example is you're at home, you've done, you don't want any more uh, treatment, you, you just want to let nature take its course, and your son comes in from California and says, oh mother, she's not breathing well, and he calls 911. And the folks from 911 respond by sending two EMTs out to your house. Well, the first thing an EMT will do is go to your refrigerator, because that's where you should always put your pulse document. Any documents, DNR documents, pulse documents, go on your refrigerator so that they know what their orders are for caring for you so that you get the kind of care you want. As you can see from all of this, this takes time to plan. This isn't something that happens overnight. You do still receive the appropriate care, but what you need to do is get started today and plan ahead for that crisis. Understanding the terms now when you're healthy makes it so much easier when the fan gets hit and you end up in a crisis somewhere, in the emergency room or in an ICU somewhere. My goal today is not to drive your decisions. My goal today is to educate you as to what kind of decisions you may be called upon to make at some point in time. And so it's important for you to have thought about it and talk to your loved ones about it before that time occurs. Explain to your loved ones what you've learned and help share that with, with, um, with all your significant others, wherever they may be. You want to have talked to folks as you complete your advanced directive so that they know what it is that makes sense to you in terms of your care. Don't put a burden of, on them of not knowing what you want. 
make sure that you in fact have an advanced directive and please don't wait for the crisis. By then, it may be too late, but it's never too late until it is. And we never know when that time is. Here are the references that I mentioned earlier. You can take a look at those. And then I'd like to take questions. Uh, Jason? Excellent, thank you, Jane. Uh, so obviously there's a lot of information here, especially when it comes to medical jargon, as you said. How can somebody know when they're doing their advanced directive that they are covering the topics that you've outlined here? Well, most medical directives, um, forms, tools that are there will allow you to, will cover some of these activities, certainly the key ones that are required. Um, the others are things that we'll talk about here, and that's one of the reasons that I work with individuals one-on-one -on -one to make sure that they do cover those things. Um, but most of the tools that are out there, particularly Five Wishes, um, we'll cover this in a little more detail. We'll cover things that are important to you that you might not think to tell people. And certainly if I'm the nurse caring for you and I've never spoken to you before, having something written by you telling me that, gee, you know, it's really important to me that you, if I'm in the hospital, that my feet are under the covers. You know, that sounds silly. But if you're lying there and you can't tell me that you're miserable because your feet are stuck under those covers, how am I supposed to know? So having a tool whereby you speak to these issues um, to share them with your loved ones is very important. Yeah, another question's come in, Jane, and they, they're asking, is, isn't palliative care just another name for hospice? Ah, no, it's kind of the other way around. Um, okay. Palliative care is, is a, a relatively new term in medicine. Um, it's basically what medicine should always have been. It's a full look at all aspects of the patient and what their needs may be and an, and an attempt to um, make certain that all aspects of a life are taken into consideration, not just the medical needs, but the social needs and the, the spiritual needs and all aspects of care and integrating that care so that um, it can be provided in a, in a conscious manner. Um, it, is, it is to try to prevent the, okay, you see the cardiologist for this and the, you know, the oncologist for this and you see somebody else for this. This tends to bring it all together. And it's not meant for end of life. Hospice is palliative care, but it's palliative care within the last six months of life when patients are no longer getting curative treatment. Palliative care is done with curative treatment. It's, it's trying to connect all the dots and make sure everything's integrated so that the patients get the very best care that's out there for them. So, so in other words, so if somebody hears the term palliative care, they shouldn't freak out because it's really about collaboration with the doctors as you go through the stages of your life. Uh, let me put it to you this way. If somebody mentioned palliative care to me, I jump on it because it means that we're going to have a, an integrated view of what's going on and we'll be able to better care for the patient. Yeah. So somebody asked, Jane, if CPR causes so many bad effects and you know, the breaking of the ribs, et cetera, why do we do it at all? 
Well, we do it today because medicine is responsible for caring for people, for making them better. And that's what we learn as nurses and physicians, that our goal is to cure somebody. And there is always hope in people's minds that CPR might be able to revive them. You know, we hear people, we hear doctors tell families there's a 5% chance. Well, okay, 90, many people will jump at the 5% chance. But if you've got those side effects, do you really want to is the question. Um, so it's, um, it's something that medicine does as a part of its care model. Uh, it wasn't what was intended for, as I mentioned in, before, but it certainly is the standard of practice in healthcare institutions today, that unless there is an order that says do not do CPR, everyone will get it. So early on, Jane, I, I wrote this down. I thought you said the term document my wishes. Can you explain what exactly document my wishes means? Well, what it means is it's it's not just documenting, it's talking to your loved ones about what is important to you. Um, you may not, you're not going to, you know, unless you're a Jehovah's Witness and you know you don't want blood transfusion, you're not going to know whether that's something you're going to want 20 years down the line. It's just, you know, but if we know who you are and know what your goals of care are and what's important to you and what preferences you have, it will help people like myself as the nurse, but also your loved ones to know how to do for you what you would want done if you could speak for yourself. Does that answer the question, Jason? Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, I want to stay with advanced care directives for a, a minute on the question of the short-term and long-term goals. When you're talking to an individual one-on-one, -on -one, Jane, you, know, you talk about a ventilator past a certain amount of time or feeding tube past a certain amount of time, I, I know talking about health is a touchy subject. So for you, what does that conversation look like? It is a touchy subject. Um, people don't even want to talk about it because they're afraid it's going to happen to them if they talk about it. Right. Um, so I try to get people to sit down and think about what is important in their life. Um, what what is it, what are the things they're looking forward to do? Is the graduation of a granddaughter or, or a daughter or son from college? Um, is it a wedding? Is you know what is it that that you're looking forward to doing, and how is it that you're looking forward to doing those things? And what matters to you? Um, you know, do you put in a situation where there was no um, chance of, or very little chance of survival? Would you want to be kept on a, a ventilator with all the side effects that they cause and all the pain it caused um, forever? Uh, there are people who do that. And there are other people who say, enough is enough. Um, I had a good life. I have no interest in extending that life when I cannot do what is important to me, whether it's see those grandchildren, speak to those grandchildren, be with people. Um, I had one guy say to me, he said, there's three things that I are important to me. One, I want to be able to watch my football on Sunday nights. If I can do that, I'm happy. I want to be able to eat my ice cream 
and I want to be able to talk coherently with my children. That's a pretty powerful statement. And it gave us a really good idea of what was important to this guy. I mean, it sounds perhaps silly or trite, but knowing what's inside that person is extremely important. And we just don't know unless you write it down. Yeah. A couple more questions, but I'd like to stay with this. Um, in previous conversations you and I have had, Jane, through our series uh, on advanced care directives and advanced care planning, what do you recommend or how many times should these conversations be happening with family and then also with professionals like you? Okay. Um, these conversations should happen at a minimum every year. Um, I'm of a firm belief that it should happen whenever the opportunity avails itself. Um, somebody goes in the hospital. Well, how? what would you want done? You know, a chance to talk about it based on the situations. Um, when celebrities die or are in the hospital for extended periods of time, you know, it opens up a conversation portal that people should be talking about um, the subject and, and exploring thoughts. You now, these thoughts don't come at you from on high and automatically you've got the answers. You need to think about it and need to kind of go over it periodically. Um, when those untoward things occur in the community, it's a good time to have that conversation. Um, and always needs, need to talk to your healthcare provider. Now I'm told, oh, I don't have a healthcare provider. I mean, I've got a system and I can't get to anybody. Well, there are programs out there in hospice, out of hospice. You know, you don't have to be in hospice to order to take advantage of the courses that they teach. Um, and I teach a lot of courses for hospice organizations. Um, and then hiring someone like myself who understands the nuances of advanced care planning and can make certain that you cover the bases and you don't get taken down the primrose path of a completion of an advanced care plan or advanced directive is something that checks a block. I saw a client yesterday who showed me something that was done by a lawyer and it it checked a block. She could say, I have a plan, but it was not what she needed. It was an X in a block and it didn't, it isn't gonna help her or her family. It's gonna be really tough on her family when the time comes because it's not complete, it doesn't have anything. And, you know, on top of the whole thing, it wasn't witnessed correctly. So it wasn't a legal document. Even though it was done by a lawyer's office, it, it, it's appalling um, how bad some are. Some are excellent, don't get me wrong. Don't send the lawyer police out after me then, because there are many um, elder care lawyers who do a superb job of this. All right. So somebody asked, you had talked about, uh, Jane, the fact that when the EMS shows up at your door, they know to look on your fridge. Is that universal? Is that state to state? Um, if somebody's yeah. listening to us in, in Oregon and somebody else listening to us in Florida, that's the same in each state or each location? That's pretty much universal throughout the United States. Okay. At, what I would recommend everybody do is, rather than assume that I'm correct, um, is to uh, check with your local um, your local fire department really is the one who okay. usually manages this because they're the ones who manage the EMTs. And I check, you know, they have tools that they give you to put in your home. 
that highlight it. And, um, and I have one on my refrigerator. Now, I don't have uh, a, uh, I mean, I have an advanced directive and that's there, but um, I, fu I fully want everything done for me if I were to, you know, stop breathing here in the house. Um, there's no reason not to, I'm healthy. Um, so that would tell them to go forth and do, do all that they can do. Um, but if I were in a different situation and had a terminal disease, I might not want them to do that. So you would have that written for them. And the order from the doctor, not just what you want, but then you need the doctor's order. Very good. Last question, Jane. Somebody's asking about VSED. Um, are there any okay. legal issues associated with VSED in the hospital? There are not. There will be people who will put up a roadblock for you for VSED um, to say, oh, that's illegal, you can't do that. But if it is the patient's preference, it can be done. I mean, I worked, I did VSED in the clinical environment 30 years ago. It wasn't called VSED back there. But, you know, the patient had a terminal disease, was not interested in moving forward, and basically, wanted to stop eating and drinking. Um, and it, it can take two to three weeks, sometimes longer, especially if they cheat and drink a little bit. Um, but it is something that is perfectly legal and uh, can be done in any environment. Very good. Well, excellent stuff, Jane. How can people find you? Okay. Well, as you saw in the beginning, people can find me at jane at mjmarkley.com. Uh, that's my email. They can find my website at mjmarkley.com. And um, I encourage anybody with any questions to jot me a note and let me know what they are, and I will be more than happy to try to address them for you. And if anybody needs help working with your family on this, that's the kind of work that I do in supporting individuals uh, in my advanced care planning facilitator work. Very good. So if anybody's listening to this or watching this, um, this is our fourth uh, webinar, correct, Jane? Yes. Yeah, um, obviously on the advanced care planning process. And we have a couple more scheduled. One we're looking at June. Okay. So, pardon? Yeah, you froze. Oh, oh okay. Um, we had, we've done, this is our fourth webinar on advanced care planning. And we have another one scheduled in early June. So if right. you would like to get copies of or wanted to see the, the various webinars we've done together, you can either email Jane um, or you can email uh, me at uh, knowledgeableagentinfo at knowledgeableagent.com. Regarding all of our previous content, uh, you can go onto knowledgeableaging.com. You can see all of our archive content. You can go on our YouTube page, type in Knowledgeable Aging. I encourage you to subscribe. We update that around four to five times per week. Till next, oh, by the way, yeah, podcast. Forgot about that. If you're a podcast listener, don't forget you can find us on Spotify, Apple Tunes, et cetera. Till next time, I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging. <laughs>